Welcome to the Small But Mighty Biz Stories Podcast, where we talk about the inspiration and motivation behind your small business. Here's your host, Karen Wilson. Hello and welcome to Small But Mighty Biz Stories. Today I am here with Natalie Bullen of Unapologetic Wealth. Welcome, Natalie. Please tell everyone about yourself. I am so excited to be here. I am Natalie Bullen. I am a money mindset coach and financial planner. I love helping women, especially women of color, step into the wealth they deserve and desire and really exploit their genius. I feel like women are often taught to hide oh, yeah. and to shrink and to diminish their gift. And if anything else, charge very little for it. So I am here to dispel the myth that you have to be quiet and secret and humble and meek in order to make an impact that you can be bold and people will pay you and you can be wealthy. I love that. And and you are very much, you embody that idea of um, small but mighty because you have a small business, but you are very bold and out there with the beliefs that you have. And I, I think that it's so important too for women, women of color, especially because as you say, women in general are taught to shrink, but it goes so much more so for women of color. Oh, for sure. It's like exponentially worse. Well, it's it's bad because there's so many stereotypes, mm-hmm. you know, um, that angry black woman archetype. So we often try not to be perceived as yeah. angry or loud because then you fall into this role that people think you're going to play. So you say, you know what? I'm just not going to play this game. I'm just going to be quiet. But In business, being quiet usually means being broke because if nobody knows who you are or what you do or how you could help them, then how can they pay you and hire you for your services? Mm. That coupled with the fact that we're often taught that others' opinions matter. Yeah. We're always worried about what other people think about what we do. I'm blessed that I had a mother who taught me that other people's opinions of me are none of my business. Mm. I love that. I think I heard that for the first time in the last few months might've even been from you. Um, and, and I, I, I just love that whole idea of it's not even not caring. It's not any of your business, what they think of you. And that's like a different mindset around that. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's really none of my business. And so it doesn't, propel me forward in any way. It doesn't pay any of my bills. There's just no merit to following and watching and thinking and believing, you know, that what people think of you is gospel. You know yourself better than anyone. I would hope. So my opinion of me matters and God's opinion of me matters. Um, I would prefer that my mom like me and my husband, Dave. That's about it in terms of people who have to like me for my life to kind of work. Everyone else is a bonus. Yeah, yeah, totally. So so tell me what got you started in your business? You know, I've always liked money. I've always wanted to get into finance. I got into banking in my 20s and I was a rule follower. You know, I 
paid my bills on time and had a good credit score, but due to some unfortunate simultaneous circumstances, a health scare, losing a job, going through a bad breakup, I actually ended up filing bankruptcy. And it was really embarrassing as a person with a finance background. It was really embarrassing as somebody who had never made a late payment. I really, my self-worth was attached to being a, a good steward of my money. Yeah, That's who I was. I was frugal Natalie. Everyone knew it. I worked two jobs and I went to college and none of it shielded me from the reality that I was still poor. Yeah. That I made $28,000, $30,000 a year that I was lower middle class or upper poverty class, wherever you want to draw that line. Alabama's the second poorest state in the country. So it takes yeah. a really low income to be poor here. Yeah. But trust me when I say, if you waiting tables making two thirteen an hour, you feel poor. I've done that. Yeah. That yeah. is a very poor place to be. It's yeah. a very poor place to be, regardless of what some statistical data says the line is. You wait tables, you feel poor, period. Yep. And um, I realized that the rules I was following weren't ever going to make me wealthy. They weren't ever going to get me out of middle class or poverty class. As a matter of fact, they were designed to keep me in the poverty class. Yep. Wealthy people typically aren't on restrictive budgets. They don't use the snowball method. They don't send their children to college to rack up six-figure student loan debt. And then I started doing some digging and found out some really scary stuff, like how black people are only 12 percent of the U.S. population, but we carry 70 percent. That's seven zero percent of student loan debt. So when I talk to white men about how we should eliminate student loan debt, no wonder they look at me crazy. They're not the ones carrying it. Yep. They have no idea what I'm talking about. But my student loan payment is twelve hundred dollars a month. It's more than my mortgage and car note combined. Yeah, when I look at the um, the, I went to university in the '90s, and I was very fortunate with that timing. I'm I'm younger Gen X, and I went to university before the the rates skyrocketed, and I didn't take out loans. I paid myself. I like, I think I asked for help from my parents one semester, but I like actually went and I worked two jobs to pay for my school. And I cannot fathom how people like, you know, five years later going to university have these bills, they're still paying off and, and they've barely barely paid down the principal because of the way it's all structured to work massively against them. Oh, absolutely. Um, I worked two jobs too, but there's yes. no way I could pay $5,000 a semester. I was barely making 5000 yes. a semester. I was making maybe $300 a week. Yeah. See, and that's the big difference. I had $1,000 a semester to pay. See, I could have I could have swung that. That could have yeah. happened, no problem. I, I could have started, you know, I worked through the summer, so I would have been able to start with yeah. a couple hundred to put down and maybe a payment plan. But coming up with five thousand, it was like a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a month. Yeah, so I, didn't, I didn't make that a month, and I had to pay rent and I had to eat because yep. it was a catch twenty two. If you lived on campus, you couldn't get food stamps. But I was working a job, so I wasn't there when they fed. 
right? Like I worked at Cracker Barrel, a restaurant yeah. where I had to pay for food. I didn't get food free, even though I worked at the restaurant, but I was yes. working at the restaurant when they served the free food at my dorm. And if you lived on campus, you had to have a meal plan. So I took out loans to pay for a meal plan for meals. I wasn't permitted to eat because I was at work. Yep. Yep. And when I tried to get money back for my meal plan, they were like, well, you have to have them. I'm like, yeah, but I don't eat the food. I'm not here to eat the food. I'm at work. And they're like, well, you should move off campus. Which costs so much more. Right. They're like, we're always going to charge you for these meals, whether you eat them or not, if you live on campus and you can't get qualified for food stamps if you have on campus access to food, even though I showed the people at the food stamp office, because that's what people said. They're like, if you need food, you should go and get food stamps. I said, well, I do feel poor. Maybe I do qualify. They're like, nope, you don't qualify if you live on campus. So it's all a racket, right? And, you know, my loans accrue not in this forbearance with COVID, $468 a month in interest. Yeah. So how much I've got to pay just to like keep keep even. Yeah. That's kind of nuts. Like that's it a break, it's a break even number. So, you know, people go, well, it's your fault for taking out six figures. I never borrowed six figures. It's just grown into that crazy number. Like I'm 33. I definitely would not have borrowed a hundred K. But if you borrow 40 K, it's gonna be a hundred K. Yeah, well two hundred K and then it's gonna be three hundred K and like How do you get out of that loop? Again, we're in a system where you can't. And frankly, the government needs our money too bad to let us out of the debt. That's the rub. The government needs the money. Have you seen Mm -hmm. the debt clock lately? Have you seen the trillions of dollars? Yeah. They kind of have to keep us going to school and, and keep us in that loop, you know, and there's a couple of easy things that could be done to fix it. They could, um, cap the student loan interest. I know people paying six and 7% on federal loans because those numbers are set by Congress. They don't change. Um, Refinancing them is pretty much impossible unless you've got a huge income because when you refinance them, it's based on income. So if you've got six figure loans on a five figure income, they're going to say you can't afford to refinance them. And you also lose your government protection. So people who refinanced into private loans have not been getting this forbearance all this time. Yeah, So you don't really want to refinance out of your government protections because sometimes they come in handy. I think two small tweaks that they could do, suspending the interest um, and two, giving them the same tax treatment as mortgages. Most people don't Mm -hmm. know this. You can write off as much mortgage interest um, as you can. If you can itemize, if you have a home that's $750,000, that was the mortgage on it, and it accrues $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month in interest, you can write all that interest off. Even if your interest rate is 10%, you can write it all off. Um, But student loan interest is capped at $2,500 that you can write off. So in a year like 2019, when I paid over $11,000 in student loan interest, I could only write off $2,500. But had it been a mortgage, I could have written off all of it. Wow. See, that's a tiny little tweak in the tax code that could easily be done that would help someone like me and incentivize people. Because right now I'm disincented. You know, if it's the end of the year and I've got an extra 5K, I'd put it on my mortgage before I put it on my student loans because I could I get a tax incentive for paying it on the mortgage. So if they really want millennials to pay these things off, they're going to have to create an economic incentive 
And before all the people thinking that's a millennial wanting an incentive, everyone else gets them. Everyone else gets a tax incentive. I don't see what's wrong with us getting one too. Yeah, it's interesting because in your work, you're helping people understand these different things that they get, you know, call it a loophole, call it a whatever it happens to be. I figure you take advantage of whatever you can, especially when you've got six figures in debt or loans or whatever it is that you have, you want to get that stuff gone as quickly as you can and get to a place where you can build the wealth that you can pass on to the next generation. And the, um, the interesting thing is that this, you know, so many of these rules don't work for people who are below a certain level of income. So what are the things that, what are some of the things that people need to know when they are on those lower incomes? What, what can you do to get out of that hamster wheel? Being middle-class is the worst place you could be. If you are making between 35 and maybe a hundred K, 150 K, if you're in like a high income place like California, it's really dangerous. So I would vote you do whatever you can to get out of the middle class, um, do an assessment of your skills. Are you able to create a business to have a second income? Are you able to get a higher paying job, a better job? If you haven't, if you've had the same job three, four, five, six years, you're probably underpaid. Oh, yeah. Because those tiny little cost of living raises have not been keeping up with inflation. And so, you know, I talked to a young lady who was um, a CNA. Uh, certified nursing assistant. I think they were paying her ten or eleven dollars an hour. She actually um, went back to school really briefly, six months or twelve months, to get a certificate in medical billing and coding. Yeah. And now she's making twenty two dollars an hour. So I mean, she's almost doubled her income because she went back wow. to school, and because of her income, she was able to actually get a scholarship and not have to pay for that program. So yeah, it was hard. Good but she had to work all day you know, toileting, diapering, really hard work, and then yeah. go to class at Ross at night. Yeah. And in the end, she was able to double her income from someone making 20-something K a year to 50-something K a year and really free up a lot of space in her budget mm. to start paying down some debt. What That's if she was hard. able to, you know, go back and become an LPN or an RN, um, you know, or maybe move up the ranks instead of being the medical biller and coding, being like the supervisor of the, the people doing the medical yeah. billing and coding. But she wasn't even unhappy with her job. It wasn't until she got in my Facebook group and I did a make more money challenge. And I just put tips every single day for March or April of last year. And one of the tips was what, assess your skills and see what it's low hanging fruit. So if you're already in medicine, can you be like a radiology tech or a phlebotomist? Like there's so many support staff. When you go to the doctor, barely anybody there is an actual doctor. There's probably one MD on the whole staff. Everyone else is a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant or, you know, clerical assistant. Like there's so much support staff in the medical system that doesn't require medical school that will pay you really well, you know, give you weekends off. Things like that. So I would tell them, make an assessment of your skills. What could you get paid more to do? Then look at, you know, low hanging fruit in terms of your budget. I don't believe in 
restrictions, stop drinking your coffee, stop having fun, stop eating brunch, give away all your joy. But I do think Mm -hmm. big changes can help. Um, I met a young lady who had gotten separated, but was still living in the house that she shared with her husband. Mm. And they had two kids and two dogs. She kept the kids. He kept the dogs. It made her miserable to live in the house where the dogs used to be without the dogs. Probably made him miserable to not see his kids all the time. She was keeping the house, I think, out of spite. Like, haha, I got the house. But without his income, that mortgage was huge. The house was huge. It was yeah. more house than she wanted to clean. So I was like, well, why don't you move? Why don't you sell this house and move into something smaller that's 1,500 square feet? You know, she's like, well, the kids are going to get bigger. Your kids are three. They're going to get bigger in 10 years. You can buy another house in 10 years. But for now, it could save you, you know, three, four, five, six, seven hundred bucks yeah. a month. What's that annualized and then over a decade, right? Like you're going to keep a big house until your three-year-olds need a big house. Yeah. Why? And so that's what she did. She ended up moving into a smaller home and went from having like a fourteen, fifteen hundred $1,500 mortgage payment to like an $800 mortgage payment. And I know yeah. those mortgage payments sound low, but I'm in Alabama. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> expectations. Okay. If she had been in California, that would have been like going from a $4,000 mortgage payment to a $2,400 mortgage payment. Just to yeah. give people numbers that make sense in their brain. But, um, you know, people buy too much car. I would ask them to really assess that car. Do you need another car? Can you keep your car 10 years? My goal is to keep cars 10 years. I got that Lexus in 2018. I'm pretty sure I was 30. So my plan is to keep until I'm 40. When I'm 40, I'll buy what I want. And I'll keep until I'm 50. And I'm 50, I'll buy what I want. And I'll keep until I'm 60. And when I'm 60, I'll buy what I want. But I'm not constantly buying cars. I'm not always on the radar for new cars. I don't need the fanciest car. This Lexus is the cheapest Lexus they sell. It's an ES350. It is a base model. Guess what? Nobody knows that. Nobody looks at that car and goes, that is the cheapest Lexus that Lexus makes. They don't know. No one knows what year it is. They don't know if it's a 15, a 16, a 17, an 18, because the body style was exactly the same all four of those model years. So until the 2019, when they changed the grill, you can't tell the difference. And when I'm inside the car, I don't know what the outside of the car looks like. So, you know, I think just just challenging the belief that you have to always be buying something and doing something Um, it's going to sound unconventional, but I think people should get a therapist. I think most people have some level of money trauma, financial trauma, money avoiding behaviors. They don't look at bills. They don't look at jury summons. They don't look at, they don't answer the phone with numbers. They don't know because it might be a bill collector. Like a lot of people have, you know, hurt from, you know, how they were brought up. If they grew up, you know, lower income or in the projects, you know, or, yeah. or single parent household, or parents got divorced, they filed a bankruptcy. That's a trauma. And if you don't heal that trauma, it will permeate throughout your finances indefinitely. And you'll always struggle to stay on a spending plan and you'll always overspend. And you'll always yeah. have that FOMO that makes you go out and buy crazy crap. And you'll always I mean, I have had a a potential client. I sent her to therapy, but she told me that she had um, clothes hidden in the trunk of her car, hidden in her husband's work shed, hidden in her kids' toy bins, just things that she had purchased that she knew she couldn't hang up and put in the house because her husband had put his foot down like, you better not buy another thing on this credit card. Like she's shredding the statements 
pretending like it was fraud on the credit cards. I mean, the 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 length of deceit that she was going to to hide uh. her compulsion, her compulsive spending behavior. And she has this compulsive spending behavior because she grew up poor and her mother used to tell her what they couldn't have and what they couldn't afford. And so as a coping mechanism, now as an adult, she's like, I can have it. You can't tell me I can't have it. I can have whatever I want. Yeah. And so you really got to assess, you know, and so I, I think you, you mental health is not the area for you to do a self-assessment. In my opinion, I think oh, you should yeah. a professional assess you. Um, I think you should talk to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a therapist and lay it all out for them. How you feel about your money, whether there's fear or shame or guilt or embarrassment and let them give you the OK that you're fine and you don't need therapy. Don't don't make that call for yourself. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, story because there we carry a lot with us through our life and you learn from the example your parents set. Um, and then, you know, to actually go against that example and break that cycle is very, very difficult. So bringing a therapist into the mix sounds like something that's unconventional for a financial uh, expert to do, but it makes a lot of sense. Oh, it's mandatory. I actually have a Rolodex of therapists. Um, the favorite one that I work with, um, who's also in the group that we're in, uh, Dr. Fanike Young. She is a licensed clinical social worker, and she's also a childhood trauma specialist and financial trauma specialist. So she specifically helps people heal the traumas that they have had and the wounds that they've had around money, especially those that occurred in their childhood. It's interesting because... Um I know that my husband and I both, we grew up with, my my family was a little bit more middle class. His was more working class. And um, it we definitely have taken that, I can see a little bit of that attitude of, well, I'm going to have what I want. You know, whether it's a brand name or um, buying things on credit as opposed to saving up and being able to pay cash for it. Um, and that is that's that's a difficult thing to unlearn. What are what are some other things that you see your clients doing that are positive that are helping them build the wealth? My clients are almost all entrepreneurs. And so the biggest thing that they are doing is stepping out and making their own income, mm -hmm. creating their own income via the businesses that they are running. That is the best thing that they can do. Um, I read either a Fortune magazine or a Forbes magazine about a decade ago. I can't remember which, but it basically said that only 10% of the high income earners that they had surveyed have income that comes from wages. So in short, 10% of their income was wages and 90% was other. And at the time I thought to myself, what on earth could you make that's not a wage, right? I didn't understand that at all because 100% of my money came from wages. So I couldn't figure out how I was going to quit my job and keep 90% of my income. But that's yeah. exactly what that article was saying. And so when you look at really wealthy people, they're not working jobs. Very, very, yeah. very, very few of them. And if they are, 
They're working extraordinarily high paying jobs. I'm talking two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, five hundred thousand dollars a year. They are nuclear physicists. They are plastic surgeons. They are anesthesiologists. They are orthodontists and not your regular run of the mill orthodontist. They are doing some, you know, reconstructive surgery type yeah. Kanye West after the accident, you know. And so uh, if you're not in a job paying you four or five hundred K, then your job's not going to make you wealthy. Statistically, it just can't. I think my most successful clients know what wealthy people do because they've started listening to me and started looking. Read up on it. Right. Um, something else that successful people with their money do is they stop vilifying rich people. Mm. So at our core in the U.S., we have a very strange dichotomy happening. We've got one end of people who love capitalism. They think it's really fair and it helps Americans succeed. And then we've got everybody else. Yeah. And people hate capitalism and they hate the wealthy. They think that they have trampled on the backs of the poor. They hate Elon Musk. They hate Bill Gates. They, they hate, you know, Kanye West. They hate Jay-Z. They hate Oprah. They hate Beyonce, like everybody who's a billionaire, right? They, the only reason they don't hate Rihanna is because they haven't figured out how rich she is yet. But she's next. <laughs> as soon as people hit that billion dollars, the hatred comes out. And you don't even know who these people are. Some of them are oil magnates and diamond. Yeah. Ex, you know, like you don't even know who these people are. But as soon as you find out they're a billionaire, you hate them. And you read these articles that say billionaires shouldn't exist. And I'm like, well, I don't know if that's really fair. You know, if I have unapologetic wealth, hypothetically, in its first year and it grows to 150K in its first year ever, which statistically doesn't happen in any business, let alone a business run by a black woman. Businesses run by black women typically gross $24,000 a year. So hypothetically, Natalie created something that 6X that. Yeah. And hypothetically, if she creates a business this year that grosses $500,000 and she pays herself a reasonable salary of 150K of it and using her financial acumen invests it really well and pays off her debt and pays off her car. And let's say next year, somehow, by the grace of God, she's able to gross a million dollars with this business. She pays herself like 300K of it. And she keeps doing this. And while she's doing this, she's also helping her husband grow his photography business. And all of a sudden we have this $30,000 package and it comes with me coaching you, Dave, photo you know, photographing you and him putting up your website and him doing the branding and us white labeling the whole service. And we're millionaires. It happens. Yeah. Does that make us bad people? No. Nope. Where is the point that we become bad people? Is it 10 million? Is it 50 million? Where's the line? Because there's a point that society will turn my rags to riches story into a tragedy. There's a line. And there is, knows yeah. it. There's a number that I could hit that would turn the way people feel about me. People feel really good about me right now. But there's a number that will make them go, that's enough, Natalie. Yeah, that's enough money. No one person needs that much money. I will say this. I think the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates, all those guys are in a totally different situation than the Natalie Bullen, who's a millionaire doing this work because they, you know, one of the things that 
it kind of drove me nuts after they, uh, when Jeff Bezos was in front of this audience talking about his flight to space, quote unquote space. He, um, he said, I want to thank all my Amazon customers and employees. You have paid for this. And what's interesting about that is how little he pays Amazon employees. And that's where I go, okay, well, you wouldn't have the wealth you do if you were paying employees a living wage. And that's where, that's where I see there's a, a disconnect between that extreme wealth. Someone who's a millionaire, they probably worked really, really hard. Unless you've got a trust fund baby, you, you probably worked really, really hard to get that. That's one thing. But if you're exploiting workers, I'm not going to be as big a fan of what you do. And that's fair. I just, you know, but like I said, it's, it's, it's interesting. Like I said, where people draw that line. So if I have a VA, a virtual assistant, and I'm paying her $20 an hour, 10 hours a week, she's getting 200 bucks a week. So if I'm paying myself 150 K a year, and she's getting 10,000, 12,000 a year. Is that punitive? What if I paid myself a million a year and still pay her that? Like, where's the line? It's always interesting. I think it depends. You get what I'm I'm saying though, because there are people who have businesses that make millions of dollars who outsource all of their VAs in the Philippines and pay them five bucks an hour and nobody cares. And, And in the Philippines, that's a lot of money. So yeah. the people in the Philippines don't feel exploited. They're happy to have yeah. some paycheck. So, like, again, I think it's I think it's interesting. Look, I know you're probably thinking, Natalie, don't you worry, you'll never be Jeff Bezos. But I, when I tell you I'm going to be as rich as those men, one day it's gonna happen, and people are not going to like my wealth anymore. I've accepted that, and that's okay. Like. I accepted it, but I think it's interesting when the tide is going to turn, it's going to turn because a lot of these people, there's a guy, I can't remember his name, Leon Coppage, maybe he's um, a hedge fund manager and he grew up poor in Miami. He's Hispanic. Um, His family was poor. His parents were poor. I don't know how he got on Wall Street, but he started as like a junior analyst for like Citigroup or something like nothing fancy, like a regular six figure job. And he married well. He didn't have a lot of kids um, and he started investing in the market and he started moving up jobs. And next thing you know, he was C-suite and then he was getting like, you know, a million dollar salary. And he just put it all in the stock market and it just grew exponentially. It just grew like crazy. And then he created his own hedge fund. And, you know, they get paid obscene amounts of money. And so yeah. now he gets like death threats. And now people are saying he makes too much money. And he's like, well, I'm in the giving pledge. Me and Bill Gates and yeah. 50 other billionaires pledge to give half of our money away. I give away tens of millions of dollars a year. I write tens of millions of dollar checks to the IRS. But yet I still get vilified. And I'm like, you're going to get vilified because you have more money than people will allow. There's an allowable amount of wealth that people are willing to have. And as a company called Unapologetic Wealth, I don't I don't care. But I just the psychology of it, like if if I go back and get a third degree, it'll definitely be a degree in psychology because 
it's so interesting to me how, like I said, we vilify wealthy people. We've made up in our mind that they are morally bankrupt to some degree because that's the only way they could have gotten that money. They couldn't have gotten there being good people. It's impossible, right? Because we're good people and we didn't get that wealth. So it must be that wealth makes you bad. It must be. Yeah. That that yeah. That's where we, and I'm like, you didn't get wealthy because the system kept you poor. It had nothing to do with your moral code. Yeah, yeah. I know lots of bad people who are poor. Watch First 48. All those carjackings and muggings tend to be in poor communities committed by poor people. So I don't really see where me making $12 an hour for the rest of my life makes me a better or more noble person than striving to have a billion dollars. But people would have more sympathy for me as a poor person going through something than as a rich person. So I think we have to check our... That's not to say there's not some greedy, horrible, wealthy people, but we have to yeah. check our feelings innately about wealth in general and stop convincing ourselves that poverty is good and wealth is bad. And as long as we're middle class, we're kind of safe because you're not safe if you're middle class. You're just one no. catastrophic event away from bankruptcy. Ask me how I know. Yeah. And that's I think that's a really important point because building that personal safety net is so important now because it doesn't exist in society. We just don't have that ability to support people uh, out of situations. I mean, and you're in the U.S. where, you know, you mentioned earlier you had a health issue and that was one of the factors that led to filing for bankruptcy. And that that is a real big concern because health Mm -hmm insurance is tied to employment and and uh that is yeah that's devastating for so many people i mean covid has i think about some of the hospital bills that people must have right now they're filing bankruptcy yep yep and it's uh we're we're setting a value on lives that way basically and it's it's it all it also prevents people from getting out of that poverty cycle and it's very unfortunate um so let's talk about uh let's talk about your business some more so you you have always been interested in finance you started out in banking and then recently you had a big change yeah i quit my job (laughs) that's a big deal that's what people keep telling me yeah I've been so busy it's hard to really know (laughs) yeah that's good that's a good sign maybe it was the right timing then yeah it's all because you went from real busy to real busy yeah yeah I really thought I'd have more time or space or energy none of those things happen None of them. But you, you know, I took a a, a workshop you did in December. Uh, it goes down in the DMs, yeah. which was excellent. And you put it together in a week, which kind of blew my mind. I was like, yeah. wow, that's I awesome. got pushed into it. Did you see the peer pressure? <laughs> oh, my God. I wanted to do it in, like, middle of February. They're like, no, you're making an excuse. Just, like throw it up and slap a price on it. And I was like, well, no one's going to pay for it. Cause I don't know what the heck I'm, I'm, I have no presentation. You don't need a presentation. Just show up and talk. 
And I was like, okay, that's right. I'm going to show up and talk. But then I was like, that's not good enough. I have to have a presentation. So I literally like stayed up all night and made my own presentation because I didn't have time to tell my VA what to put in it because, you know, it was in a week. So it worked out in the end. I'm glad I did it in December because that gave me time for Christmas to kind of have a lull. You know what I mean? Like it, it worked yeah. out, but yeah, it was nerve wracking, but I am good on workshops. I'm better at teaching than a lot of things. That was, it was great because I, you know, for one, what the workshop was about is that you were basically sharing your knowledge around a particular type of social selling where you building relationships one-on-one indirect messages and not only building relationships, you're making sales. Yeah. And uh, at the time, the highest sale you had made to date in DMs exclusively was 2500 Have you hit the 5000 mark yet? I closed a $9,500 sale in the DMs. Amazing. The Amazing. Week. Sure did. No sales call. Vetter got a paid in the DM. Yeah. So... I took that because one of the things that I don't love in general is sales. And one of the, what I liked about your approach is that it was very relationship centric, that it was all about authentic interactions with people. And so talk about how that drives what you do a little bit. You know, relationship building is the key. It's 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 100% of sales. It's all of it. People will buy things they don't even need if they like you. <laughs> so it's really about how do you foster relationships with people that matter? When it yeah. comes down to money, people have a fear. Most people are terrified to meet with me. I have an intimidating online presence and I'm really intelligent. So people are like, holy crap, now this is going to tear my business to shreds because I am not making any money, right? So if you trust me and you like me and you know that I'm a kind person and I'm not yeah. going to judge you no matter how much money you make, yeah, then that helps you let down your guard and actually give me good data to use. You're not going to show me tax returns if you don't trust me. You're not yeah. going to hire me if you don't like me and you're not going to take my advice if I'm a bitch. You're just not. So building relationships yeah. is 100% of sales now. Sales is based on service. That's yeah. why you'll see me on the internet serving people for free all the time because I'm leaving little virtual business cards all over the have tens of thousands, millions of business cards. Yeah, you are excellent at this too. So one of the things that has, you know, I watch your your content all the time. Um, and when I say content, I mean just, you know, the way that you're interacting with people because I, I see content as much bigger than just, you know, I'm going to do an Instagram post. But the um, your approach is very much about service from the beginning. You ask questions that are so important and you are right there interacting with people, not just, not just, um, giving pat replies to their answers, but caring about their answers and helping them when they express an, a problem, which 
the energy that you put into that is so phenomenal to me because it's rare. There are not a lot of people I see doing that. I'm learning that, which is strange to me, but everyone has different strengths. I am a um, problem solver. I yeah. forget the name of that Clifton strength. Is it restorative? Whatever I one needs to you, you fix people's problems. Sounds about right. That's restorative my thing. Um, yeah. So I don't like problems. I'd rather they be solved immediately yeah. if possible. So I'll see yeah. people languish over a problem for months. I'm like, why don't you just do this? They're like, I never thought of that. Well, think about it today. Go do it. What, what? Yeah, this came up on a podcast I was listening to right before we got on. And, and they were talking about the whole idea of holding back some of the best things that in your expertise um, because of the belief that someone won't hire you. And you are a perfect example of why that is is not the right approach. I and mean, I say that it, to people all the happen. time. It can happen. Don't get me wrong. There have but been those a time aren't your two. people. They aren't your people. That's what I'm gonna say. There's been a time or two where I helped somebody and they went, "Oh, well, you've helped me so much already. I don't need your services." It's happened. Yeah. But one, they're probably mistaken. Good grief. Yeah. They're probably mistaken. Um, and two, they're not my people because my people want to keep working with me. And if you've got money mindset challenges, if you've got a, a, a belief that keeps you under earning, you know, and over delivering, earning beneath your purpose, if you're an expert, but your bank account looks like a novice, my messages in the DMs aren't your solution. You need ongoing coaching and support. So yeah. I, I believe in putting my best out there because People don't just hire me for my expertise. They hire me for the accountability. That's what they're hiring me for. Having somebody to go back to when those feelings and doubts creep up. If I go, Karen, let's work together. You go, no, no, I'll be fine. You help me in the DMs. That's enough. What happens when someone tells you no to a sale? Now you're back deflated. But if you have a coach, you can come back and go, I tried it and it didn't work. And I go, okay, well, what exactly did you say? What, what was your tone of voice? When you said the price, were you like confident or did you immediately start trying to explain it away? Because I've seen yeah. that. People go, well, the service is $5,000, um, but there might be a discount or a payment plan if you need it. And it comes with this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And, this. Um, and you know, because I know you so well, maybe I could work you in on Tuesday. I mean, I only work on Fridays, but I could start you on Tuesday. Like, we immediately yeah. start to diminish the value of the number yeah. as soon as the number comes out. It's yeah. like you got to give people time to think. If the price is five thousand, you got to let that breathe. The yeah. price is five thousand dollars, and it is the solution to your problem. And then just shut up. Yeah. And then see what they say. I used to have a coach who would say, "You're trying to do your uh, their bookkeeping for them." Yep. And it's, it's so true. Cause it's, you, you don't know what they're thinking. Don't assume you do. Or what they're willing to invest or what means they have to invest or how determined they are to invest in themselves. You just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's so important to, it's so important to make sure that you are confident in your prices and please charge enough. Yes, please. 
I get into that with people all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm a marketing consultant. So when I, when I start talking pricing with people, I'm breaking down, okay, how many hours are you spending on this? And, and then, you know, what are you delivering? All right. There's, there's the actual hourly rate you're getting, but what's the value on top that you're actually providing? What are you doing that saves them time and money that you can charge a premium for? Exactly. And we forget that. And, and, and a lot of business owners don't even factor in that, you know, like what are, how much time they're even spending delivering this service. Right. And, and the cost and and then they see what their hourly rate is and it's like, whoa, I'm not making enough money. Right. Well, and their expenses, because I don't even like the hourly rate thing. Like how much could you make at a job? Like the opportunity cost. Oh yeah. It's important to factor in the insurance and taxes and licenses and coaching and accounting and bookkeeper yep. and trademark fees and et cetera. Like most people aren't charging nearly enough for the size of business they are. Unless you've got dozens and dozens of clients, you're going to have to be expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the way the math works out. So, yeah. um, you know, people try to be Walmart, but Walmart has incredible volume and deep pockets and huge marketing and advertising budgets. So until you get to that point where you've got 100 million customers, then you can't be really cheap. And even Walmart has struggled in recent years because being cheap isn't the differentiator that it used to be. With supply chains the way they are now, most people can match Walmart's price. They just choose not to because they're deciding to be a different differentiator like quality or customer service. Neither of which Walmart cares anything about. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, Natalie, is there... What's next for you? What are you What are you working on this year? Now that you've you've let go of your job and you're focusing on your business, what's what's up in 2022? Um, 2022, I will become a registered investment advisor and be able to do investment management as well under the umbrella of a different company. I will focus on women entrepreneurs and especially women of color. 70% of financial advisors are men, 80% of them are white, and 72% of them are over age 50. So finding a black millennial licensed financial advisor is a literal nail, or what is it? Nail in a haystack? Yeah. Needle. needle in a haystack. Needle in yeah. a haystack. I'll be the needle. So I'm excited yeah. about moving that direction. Um, Paid speaking engagements will be a huge focus. I think as many people who can get encouraged and motivated about building wealth as possible, I am on the fence about whether I'm going to write a book or launch a podcast. So we'll see which way that goes. But one of the other of those things will happen in 2022. That's amazing. Um, so registered investment unicorn is really what you're you're gonna yeah. be. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be really fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, and when people meet me, they're just like, "It's you. You're not like the client associate." I'm like, "No, no, no. It's it's gonna be me." Yeah. Amazing. The brown the brown face. Yeah. <laughs> I, I find that exciting because you know, like trying to find it, it's the same in Canada. And the thing is, like. Black people make up, I think, is it 30% of U.S. population? 12. Is it 12%? Okay. Jesus. Um, and <laughs> It's probably 30% in Alabama, but Alabama's Southern. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. true. I 
like I'm from Tallahassee, Florida. We have yeah. See, so exactly, it's probably thirty yeah, percent yeah. Tallahassee. T Pain oh, is more. It's yeah. more than yeah. thirty yeah. If you go to like Rhode Island, there's like zero. So like, there's a lot of states where there's just like no black people at all. So kind of averages out, and that's twelve percent, including people who claim mixed race who check like black and another yeah. box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Yeah. Not a whole lot. (laughs) And Canada is three and a half percent. I believe it. I've been to Canada. I was surprised um, that it was, A, not very many Black people and that there were so many Asian people. I didn't realize there was so much diversity, like other race diversity. Because Alabama, you're either Black or you're white. There's not really a lot of other ethnicity here represented. But I I like that Toronto was a, a lot of ethnic diversity. It just wasn't ethnic diversity that looked like me. I used to say, that's true. I used to say to people that the U.S., you know, calls itself a melting pot, but I never experienced a melting pot until I came to Canada. Yeah, I agree with that. I live, I live near, yeah, I have black friends. I have Muslim friends, like mm-hmm. Middle Eastern descent. I have uh, East Indian, Asian, like, oh, that's cool. it is like a full on milk, Pakistani, like, yeah, that's I have, like New York, you know, and I, I had a client last year who's from Qatar. Like, it's amazing to have the amount of diversity that we do here and yeah. you know you ride the bus around ottawa um i used to ride the bus when i worked downtown you yeah. ride the bus and you hear so many different languages the predominant one is english and french but you still hear all these different languages and you don't i i mean i grew up that's in Tennessee, so cool. florida we were mostly black and white there so yeah see so that's that's the same here but i'm excited about it if people want to follow me i live on Clubhouse so they can follow me at Natalie Bullen. I have a free Facebook group where I give financial empowerment tips for entrepreneurs. It is called Unapologetic Wealth. It is the only Facebook group with that name. Trust me, me and my attorney checked. Um, And then, of course, they can always check me out um, at unapologeticwealth.com. Yeah. And you're did you mention Instagram? Uh, what's my IG? At Unapologetic Wealth. Yeah, yeah. Follow Natalie all the places. We'll make sure we include some links in the show notes so that people can easily get to you because uh, you've got amazing things to share and you are so very helpful. So I hope people uh, will go and check you out and follow you and, and get to know you. I hope so. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Small But Mighty Biz Stories. Want to hear more stories? Visit smallbutmightypod.com and be sure to tell us about your fave small biz so we can share their story too. 